0: How are you guys? Man, I'm so glad that you're with us here today. My name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we want to welcome everybody who's with us online as well. Can we welcome them this morning? Encourage you guys to, if you want to pull out your phone real quick and just share the Facebook Live uh, message today. It's just a great way to invite your friends to be part of the ACF community, even if they're from a distance. Maybe they're deployed right now or out of state or maybe just kind of afraid to come into church because that's kind of awkward sometimes to walk into an unknown space like this. So uh, definitely a great way to get the word out about this community. So we are in a series called Polarized. It's a conversation about the polarized issues of this world and how are we to navigate those topics? And sort of the, the narrative that's been given to us is that you have to hate the people that disagree with you. And as kingdom-minded people, we disagree with that wholeheartedly, that we actually think that we can disagree and love people. We think that actually our disagreements can make us even stronger and can build relationships. And and, and as we started off this series, we said that people like Jesus like people who are nothing like Jesus. And so this is this idea that Jesus, when he walked the earth, he was attracted to people who were different than him. Spent time with the broken and the hurting and the sinners of his day. And he, he was around them a lot. And yet for us as Christians, sometimes we separate and sort of sequester ourselves away from people who are different than us. And, and I just want to tell you that looks nothing like Christ And so then last week, we talked about understanding people better. And one of the reasons that we don't have good conversations is that we understand people's reasons, think that people's reasons are unreasonable. We think that whatever their reason is for believing what they believe or thinking the way they think, that it's just going to be unreasonable. And so why even try to understand? But what happens when you actually ask why, when you seek understanding, is you start to be able to have grace for people who see things different than you do and, and have a real conversation because you understand where they came from what their upbringing was, how they've been hurt over the years, and how that has kind of shaped the way that they see the world. And so we're continuing our talk today. I'm actually kind of losing my voice this morning. So you guys, this is like service number four this week. And so I don't have a lot left in my voice, but I'm, I'm so excited about what we're sharing today. I've, I've entitled this message, A Cry for Justice. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. So I'd encourage you to grab a Bible, um, open up your ACF app, and all the text will be on there as well. This is a really well-known text if you've been in the church for any extended period of time. This is the salt of the earth text. It's where we get that statement if you know somebody who's like a real salt of the earth guy. uh, That's where that statement comes from is this specific text today. And so I want to read this for us and we're going to get into this. I've never preached this text before, so I'm excited to kind of unpack this together with you today. Matthew 5, 13 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So I I tell a lot of dad stories. I don't know what to tell you if you're sick of them, but that's just my life. So I learn a lot from my kids. They teach me a lot of things. And a few years ago, we were back in Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is where our family is from. And, And we were at grandma and grandpa's house with all the kids and so we're upstairs at the kitchen table having a conversation, and all of a sudden it gets super quiet, which you as parents know is a problem, right? Like quiet means somebody's getting killed somewhere. Somebody is tearing something up. Like when it gets quiet, that's an issue. And so we start looking around the house, and, and, and there's no noise. The kids are gone somewhere. We don't know where they're at. We go downstairs, and, and we can't find them down there. And, and somebody sees that the door to the crawl space is cracked open. We're like, oh, okay. So we open the door. And there are all of our children standing there staring at us, covered head to toe toe in paint, house paint. And and the whole crawl space is just, like, red and blue and green and purple. It's like Joanna Gaines, like, had a nervous breakdown or something in this place. It's, It's just all, like, no plan, no design, paint everywhere. They have found these gallon buckets of paint in there. They have even found the little opener, the little silver deal, and they got that cracked open. And then Grandma set them up to fail because there were paintbrushes and rollers and all kinds of stuff down there. And so they, like, went at it. And somebody said, I think Grandma needs a new paint scheme in her crawl space. And so it's just, like, colors everywhere and of course grandma's like oh I love it I love it you know and we're just like no don't encourage them right so parenting moment and we you know discipline the kids in that moment but it was just it's a total disaster right it's it's still that way to this day she still loves it but I was just thinking as we get into this conversation here today about justice and, and having a cry for justice we we're in a very interesting time as a culture It's interesting because there is sort of this trend towards social justice, right? Which is a really good thing that people in our society today, people who maybe want nothing to do with God or with the church, have this sense that there are things in the world that are just plain wrong. And, And I think this is a really good thing. And in fact, even in this room, there are probably people from a lot of different faith backgrounds, from a lot of different church backgrounds. Maybe this is your first time coming to church. But there are things that even in this room we could agree are wrong with the world, right? That we all would look at that and be like, that's not how people should be treated. That's not how people should be talked to. There are things that are just wrong in the world. And and so there's this sort of this trend that I've seen really grow over the past 10 or 15 years of social justice, and so people are really uh, challenging some of the things that are wrong in this world and starting nonprofits and, and different movements that we see through social media. And so there's a lot going on that are challenging the issues with the world. Now, that's a great thing. And in fact, as kingdom-minded Christians, we would say, yes, yes, let's come up against, let's fight for justice. Let's fight against injustice in the world. But here's the problem the problem is most of what people fight for today is driven by something called social consensus. And social consensus is simply defined as, as what we as a general culture would say is right and is wrong. And all you have to do is crack a history book to see that that's gotten us into some trouble over the years. That, that as a culture, we don't always together see the right things to be right and the wrong things to be wrong. And so it's a little like this. I've got a, I've got a paint gun up here. Um, this would do a number on a crawl space, wouldn't it? And so, you got a paint gun, and I was thinking about it this week, it's a little bit like everybody's got their favorite color, right? Like everybody in this room has what color they would paint the crawl space if they had a chance. And so, we have this culture full of people all armed with paint guns, sort of spraying the color of whatever they believe to be right and wrong is socially acceptable, right? And it looks a little like the crawl space. It's just kind of chaos, Right? I mean, in this group of people, they, they're, they're, they're wanting this to be wrong and this to be right. In this group of people, this is wrong and that's right. And it actually gets even worse because as we talked last week, Jesus describes us and Paul describes us, if we don't know Jesus as spiritually blind. It's like we, can't, we literally can't see. And so it's not just that people have paint guns, but it's that they're actually like this. So can you imagine if you hired somebody to paint your house and they showed up like this? right? That'd be a disaster, right? You wouldn't want to see this from somebody you hired to paint your house, but this is how the Bible describes a culture that tries to define morality for itself. Like, we all have what we think is right, what we think is wrong, what we think is acceptable, and so we're just sort of spraying the world with our favorite color, and what was wrong yesterday is right today, and what's right today is wrong tomorrow, and so everything's shifting, everything is changing, and, and we as the church, we go, well, there's got to be right and wrong. There's got to be what is just and unjust. And it can't be simply driven by what we're comfortable with or what we see as, as the social norms of our day. And this whole idea that our culture, even people who don't believe in God, are fighting for justice in the world really doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because, because here's what I would say is that for there to be justice, there must be injustice, Right? And for there to be injustice, there must be one singular judge. There must be somebody who is determining what is right and wrong. Otherwise, we're just all fighting for whatever we feel like fighting for in the moment, right? And that can be shifted based on what I'm comfortable with, what society says is okay, and what isn't okay. And so the idea that we have a culture that's like, no, there are things that are worth fighting for, things that are just wrong, doesn't actually, uh, isn't compatible with the idea that there is no God. And in fact, famous atheist Richard Dawkins, in his book, God Delusion, he speaks about this idea that we're all sort of kind of just following our impulses, that that this road, when, when you believe there is no God, it leads to there being no morality, that there really is no ethics, there is no right and wrong. And here's what he says. He says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. Anybody heard that quote before? It's, it's crazy. I mean, but, but that, that may, it makes sense actually. This idea that if there is no God and we just sort of are these, these piles of DNA operating out of our impulses, that there can be no right and wrong. We're just all sort of dancing to the music Of our own DNA. But yet at the same time, we would say, that can't be true. I mean, there are things that are just wrong and things that are worth fighting for, just as much as if, like, my son has an issue with biting kids at school, like he's biting your kid at school, and you're talking to me about it. I mean, you'd be shocked if I was like, well, Billy... That's not my son's name. Grayson. Well, Grayson, like, sure, go ahead and, and, and bite other kids. That's fine. That's what your DNA says to do. You just do you, Grayson. Like, you just do you, buddy. Whatever you feel like, just bite the other children, right? I mean, of course not. Of course you wouldn't say that. You'd be like, no, you need to impose what is right upon his sense of what is right and wrong. You need to impose yourself upon that. And so I will tell you that there are things that, obviously, we understand this in culture to a, a variety of different g- degrees. Like, you can't just feel like driving 100 miles an hour on the Glen and not get a ticket for that, right? I mean, we have laws against those things. And we have have laws against a lot of different things. And so in the tension that we feel in this culture, in this drive towards social justice, that there is a right and wrong, which we do believe. We do believe that there is a design. And that there is a God that's created humans to, to flourish and to be healthy, to be loving, right? We believe there is a design and that it's not a secret that God gave us his word and told us how we should live and what is actually best for us. So we believe that. But the culture, in the culture that's pushing towards social justice, there's also another sermon that's sort of being preached to us. And it's the sermon of Tolerance. So it's really this clash of two different worldviews all mixed up together that we should tolerate people's behavior and that we should also fight for what is just and unjust. And so there's always this tension. And sort of the sermon that's preached to us is this, the way that we relate to others in a polarized society is tolerance. And you you can define tolerance as this, the willingness to accept behavior and beliefs that are different from your own. Now some of you are like, isn't that what this sermon series is about? Like, isn't that the purpose of Polarize? Is that we learn to accept behavior and beliefs that are different than our own? Not really. We're learning to accept people and to love people who see things differently than we do and to develop, to develop real conversations with them. And that, that's, that's really important. But we actually do want to push up against the things that we see are wrong in the world. We want to do so in, in a kingdom-minded way. So, tolerance is not the way that we relate to people in a polarized society. Jesus preaches a different message. Jesus says that the way we relate to others in a polarized society is love. And love is so much better than tolerance. Because love's willing to confront sometimes, right? Love's willing to fight for things. If you love somebody, you don't just let them destroy themselves, you're you're, you're looking for ways to lean in and call the best out of them. That's what love does. Love calls the best out of people. And I just want to start with this this morning as the church, that's what we're called to do. It, like, like we're, we're here to call the best out of the world around us and to show people a vision for the kingdom of God. And so as, as those people who have been changed by Jesus, there are things that we see that we're like, that doesn't look like the kingdom of God. This doesn't look like the kingdom of God. And so we together are constantly fighting against evil. And for what is good. So what is evil then? Like how do we know what evil is? So if justice is as things should be, then I would say evil is, it could be defined as as it should not be. As it should not be. Things are not the way they are meant to be. And the tension is this, that we as a society don't have one place that we find the truth from, right? But we as the church, we do, Right? And so Isaiah 5 says this, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. In other words, God, would you give us your counsel? This should be our prayer. God, would you help us to know what is good and what is right in the world? Guide your church, guide your people, help us to to have discernment in a world that's throwing all kinds of different things around. But then it says in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. So the question is, is that us? Have we made the mistake of calling light darkness and calling darkness light? Have we made that mistake of falling prey to whatever the society is saying? Hey, just paint it this color. Like, that's, that's good for you right now. Are we, are we being tossed to and fro from, from the culture? Are we actually driven by what, what God, God's word is actually saying is best for human flourishing? Because as Christians, we desire the light. We desire the end of darkness. I mean, together we should desire the end of racism, right? And yearn for a day where there's no murder, no genocide, no sexual abuse, no abandoned children, right? We yearn for those things because we really believe that God is going to restore the world. And here's the best news, and, and, and any of you should want to believe this, that in the end there will be justice that justice will be served, which brings up a really important question, which end of justice am I going to be on, right? Like, what's that going to look like when, when justice is poured out on me? And so I want to I ask this question today as we walk forward is, is there a way for Christians to humbly and boldly advocate for change in the world? Is there a way for us to do that, to, to understand that, yes, this world is not our home, We look forward to to a a new heaven and a new earth where God restores and redeems what is broken in this world. And yet here we are, as we live, is there a way to advocate for change? I believe there is. And I believe not only that there is, but that we should advocate for change in the world we live in. So back to Matthew 5.13. If you want to open up to that passage. I want to go a little bit kind of deeper with this whole conversation about salt of the earth. And and basically, it's starting off with this idea that if you're a believer in Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. And and salt does a lot of things. When they thought of salt, they thought of salt being something that flavors. I want some salt on my french fries, right? I like salt on my food. Salt preserves. And for them, that was a big deal. As, As meat would decay, they would put salt on it to keep it from decaying. Uh, salt creates thirst, right? It, it creates a, a thirst. Just as Christians, we should create a, a thirst for God. And I believe all that is true. But he goes forward and he says, hey, what if salt loses its taste? Like, what if, what if salt loses its influence? I mean, what do we do with that salt? How shall its saltiness be restored? And I want you to know this, that... Um, and just to wrestle with this this morning that in many ways we as the church have lost our saltiness we've lost our influence we're not influencing the world around us very well i think one of the biggest problems and the biggest lies that we fall into is this need to be accepted and i'll tell you just from my own experience this is something that i really struggle with because i i want you to like me i do i want people to like me i want i want people to want to be around me i don't like it when there's relational tension And yet what we read in the scriptures is that if if there's not some relational tension sometimes, and if people aren't sometimes a little upset with you for what you believe, then you're probably actually not living a life following Jesus. I mean, you have to kind of go back to what do I believe? What am I about? Because if we believe in Jesus, if we believe that there are things that are just and unjust, that means that we're going to be fighting for things occasionally. We're going to be talking about things occasionally. And that people in the world will disagree with you and will disagree with me. So we have to start off by going, man, okay, this is going to be hard sometimes. But we don't want to fall into this category of those who have lost their taste. So this kind of begs another question. What is Jesus speaking about? When he says, like, what does it mean to, like, lose your taste, lose your influence? And as you read the Sermon on the Mount, what you see, and I'd encourage you, go back and read this whole section of Scripture. It's going to shine a lot of light on this one verse. What you see is Jesus contrasting two people groups. And these are two people groups that look really similar on the outside. The first people group are the religious people of the day. And they're doing all kinds of good things. In fact, very respected for their morality. They look from the outside like very clean and upstanding people. And then over here are other people who are also doing good things. And might also look on the outside like very upstanding people, except they have actually been transformed by God. And so this whole section of scripture, I need to start you off with this. It's not simply a a way to encourage you to go on a mission trip, right? Like this whole section, it's not just trying to convince you like, okay, go, you need to do some more good works throughout your week and, you know, go shovel your neighbor's yard or whatever. Like then you've gained your saltiness. No, he's trying to help us to see the difference between those who have actually been transformed by God and those who have not. And the thing is, only you know. Like the people around you, they might be like, you're actually one of the best Christians I've ever met. And you know actually in your own heart that, that, you're, that you're not. That you're not doing things for the right reasons. And, and Jesus sees this in his day and confronts the Pharisees and the relig- religious leaders for all of the same things. They're acting. They're acting. They look really good on the outside, yet they are broken on the inside. So I think for us first, as we confront the things that are worth fighting for in our society, we need to deal with this. And I want you to write this down. It's a trap to advocate for God's justice in other people's lives without asking for it in our own. I think this is where we get off the rails as a, as, as a church and as Christians, is that we see things in the world that we're like, man, that's just wrong. We, we believe that there are problems, and maybe you're right that it's, that, that it's an issue, but you haven't first asked God to pour out his justice into your own life. And, and the thing that we realize as Christians is that we, we are recipients of every good thing that we have. Like, like we, None of us deserve to be here. None of us deserve to spend eternity with God. We don't deserve the grace that God gives us. And the grand story of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes all of the wrath of God upon himself on a cross. The, the, that which was deserved by us For what we've done, Jesus takes upon himself. And so so as we look at that and we go, man, that's the story of our lives. It changes the way that we seek justice in the world, okay? Like it changes our tone. It changes the way we talk about things, the way we approach things. When we start with that place of seeking God's justice in our own lives first, it actually changes the conversation. So let me give you a few examples of this. So I, I just was thinking, what are the things that we're doing that are just like good things? That we're seeking good things. The, the first thing that came to my mind was in November um, we partnered up with Compassion International and uh, sponsored 500 children in uh, Burkina Faso, which means that many of you are spending $38 a month to give one child, maybe many children, food, education, healthcare, and biblical training. So their desire is to rescue children out of poverty in Jesus' name, which is a great vision, right? Now, even your friends, if they're not Christians, would be like, yes, rescue children out of poverty, right? They would connect with that. We just kind of add the in Jesus' name part of it, right? Because we don't want to just heal them physically. We want to see them be healed spiritually, right? And so that's a really good thing. I'm excited about that. I'm glad that we're doing that. But I wonder in all of that, have we first sought God's justice in our own hearts? And here's what I mean by this, that it doesn't make sense to go across the world to rescue children out of poverty in Jesus' name if we're living materialistic and self-indulgent lives here on the home front, right? Like, yeah, poverty, we want to wipe out poverty for these children, that's great, But then I'm going to live obsessed with my finances, obsessed with money, gaining all of my security from what I have in the bank account back here at home. Like, does that make any sense? So do you see the difference between somebody who's like, for 38 bucks a month, I can feel better about myself, or somebody else who's like, no, I'm going to actually support children because Jesus has first poured out his justice in my own life, and I see that, that, that money doesn't give me security. Finances don't give me security. My material things don't give me security, so I'm actually going to use the resources God gave me to build his kingdom, kingdom across the world, right? So that's a different approach, and these are the two groups that Jesus is drawing contrast with. How about this? Impact Eagle River. We do this every year. It's my favorite Sunday of the year. So we cancel our Sunday morning church gatherings and we go out into our city. We serve people. There's hundreds of you that go out and do projects and I love it. Uh, We give free oil changes to single parents, foster families, adoptive families. Um, We changed the oil for like over 100 people last, 100 different vehicles last year and um, I love it. Like it's one of my favorite things that we do. But here's my fear. Every single year that we do this, I I struggle with this. My fear is is that we would serve our city in the name of Jesus, and at the end of the day, we would leave comforted instead of compelled to go and serve more and convicted to change the way that we live our lives. You see you see the difference, right? It's a huge contrast that we wouldn't be changed by the gospel. We would just go kind of like, oh, sweet, we serve people. Let's do it next year again. You know, like waiting on next year. We talked earlier about some of the social trends and, and one of the big things that it's sort of uh popular today to oppose human trafficking, which praise God for that amen i mean that's that's a mess it's, it's terrible, and it looks nothing like the kingdom of God, the dehumanization of people i mean that's 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 terrible, and so we as the church, we would applaud that and support that and in fact, um, just pretty recently was sort of the end it movement I'm not, they had like a day where you put the red x on your on your hand, many of you maybe did that, posted on Instagram right with the red x and so that's that's a trend, it's popular, it's something that we would also agree with, but here's the thing, is that it doesn't make sense that we would oppose human trafficking on a global scale, and then go home and watch pornography in the evening, right? That we would give ourselves to these things that are unhealthy, and at the same time contribute to the problem that we say that we're against. We actually have to seek God's justice in our own lives, let him work out justice in our own hearts, so that we can see him do a movement on a global scale. You guys are super quiet. I love it. I love it. No, this, this, is, this is heavy stuff, and I get this. I get this. And I want to push a little bit more. The, uh, the abortion debate is back into the news, right? I mean, this is a big deal uh, with the recent bill that, um, that wasn't passed. There's a lot going on here. And I just, I remember growing up in the church, and um, for my parents' generation, this was a big conversation, um, and, and in many ways, the conversation's gone silent, and now it's kind of rising back to the surface, and, um, and I know, here's, here's what I know, whenever you say that word, especially in the church, there's a lot of shame that comes up. And so when I mention the, the A word, the abortion word, the, here's what I know, in, in a room like this, there are women who have had abortion, and, and men who have supported those. And here's what you need to know as we walk into the, even this conversation is that abortion is not the unforgivable sin. You need to hear that. You need to know that. That's probably not the story that you heard. Because a lot of people got, have gotten a lot of judgment and a lot of resistance in an unhealthy way, in a way that doesn't look like Jesus. And so as I'm watching this debate kind of rage on, I see a lot of people um, pushing both directions in different ways. And I see the church there, and, and in so many ways, the church has been sort of a, an agent of shame for people. And I, and I wonder, like, for you, if you've even felt that before, or maybe you've participated in that shaming, right? Uh, because here's what, here's what I know. You don't even have to say anything. I mean, you ladies know the power of a look, don't you? Like, especially you ladies in the room. All somebody has to do is look at you to make you want to just leave a room. Just that, that little look of like, oh, I get it. I get how you see me, Right? And so we as the church, we got to go, okay, we might be part of the problem here. Like, we might be part of the issue. And and here's what I ran across this week in a a recent survey that was done. And this is such a big deal. I want you to to read this. It said that this, Many women with unplanned pregnancies go silently from the church pew to the abortion clinic, convinced the church would gossip rather than help. More than 4 in 10 women who have had an abortion were churchgoers, when they ended a pregnancy. Something's wrong, right? I mean, I just want us to let that burn for just a second. Is that four in ten women who have had abortions are part of a church family. And here's what's happened, is that even in the church, because of the shame that people feel, like, can you imagine somebody that's sitting down the row from you going, yep, got pregnant, didn't plan on it, I go to church, I might have this child, but I'm going to get so much shame from my friends and from my church family that I can't have this child. And that we would participate in the problem to some degree, right? And so that's, that's huge. We love children. It's good. It's good. Relax. You guys are good. This is a massive issue. This is a massive problem. Something that we as a church, and you're like, well, you know, abortion, okay? So this is something that we should speak about. And as those who are fighting for those who can't fight for themselves, like absolutely, this falls under that category. But the conversation has been so filled with shame that people, here's what people hear from the church, the church will hate you if you have an unplanned pregnancy. But what if the new message was the church will help you if you have an unplanned pregnancy? If we let God's justice work out in our own hearts, what we're going to do is instead of just posting stuff on Facebook, you might go volunteer at the Heart to Heart Pregnancy Center. I mean, you might go raise some stuff together for a a young mom who didn't plan on getting pregnant and just help her get a car seat, help her get a vehicle, help her get by, right? I mean, you might try to make a difference in somebody's life physically, but you can't do that if you haven't allowed God's justice to to come into your own heart first. What's going to come out of you is judgment and shame. And so I think we as the church, we need to repent from this, and we need to understand that there's there's an issue here, and, and the good news is social consensus even on this topic is shifting. Have you guys seen that? Even recently, the millennial generation, which I'm just kind of at the tip of, the millennial generation is more opposed to abortion or uh, especially late-term abortion than the previous generation, which God bless millennials, right? You don't hear that a lot, do you? (laughs) God bless the millennials. This is really good, though, right? I mean, the youth are saying, stop killing the youth. That's a good message to say. So the, the, the social consensus is shifting, but that doesn't mean it won't shift back. That doesn't mean it won't continue to change. And so we as God's people have to go, man, okay, here's what we believe is good and and, and is right, and here's what we believe is wrong. We want to call the best out of society, but we want to love them in the name of Jesus, whatever they think. So know this, wherever you're at with this topic, we want to be your family, even if you disagree, even if you see things differently than I do. But then he goes on, he talks about this salt, and he's like, then what is it good for? Like, if you're not fighting for something, what's it good for? simply this, here's the question we need to ask, is what good is a faith that doesn't fight for anything? What good is it? What's the point if we're not fighting for anything? And I would say this, a faith that isn't fighting for something is probably failing. I've seen a lot of people walk away from the church because they just didn't have anything to do with their faith. They're just like, oh yeah, I raised my hand in church that one day, I got baptized, and then I kind of hit the finish line. Felt like, what else? What's next? Instead of saying, no, there are things worth fighting for, things that we need to, to stand up for in the world. Jesus says, he says this in Luke 14, 35, this is, this is his other way of saying this, that it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? So he says, this salt, as it loses its saltiness, is, is useless. Like it has nothing that it's good for. In fact, he's like, it's not even worth throwing on the ground. Like the ground's good for something. <laughs> the ground can grow stuff and it can, can, can bring stuff up, but you throw this useless salt on the ground, then it's worthless. So he says it's not good for the ground. Then he, t- he talks about a manure pile that's Interesting. He's like, if you're the kind of person that has lost their saltiness and influence in the world, you're not even worth like throwing on a manure pile because you're going to ruin the manure, is what Jesus is saying. Because the manure can grow stuff. It can, you know, fertilize the ground. And so this is what I think he's trying to communicate to us, is that you and and my faith need some work. Your faith needs some work. Your faith needs something to fight for, something to, to push for. And that's for this picture of the kingdom that Jesus paints so beautifully for us. And when I say fighting, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean just screaming about something. I mean us standing up for the right things in a way that looks like love to our world. This is a very different way of fighting. Like, for you, fighting for what's good and right in our culture might mean serving with our kids at ACF Church. I mean, as you're taking care of these kids on a a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, you're teaching them the gospel. You're showing them love and acceptance. You're actually fighting up against all the things that they're dealing with at home and at school. You're fighting for a vision for something better, calling the best out of them. So fighting might not always look like what you think it looks like. And there's a lot of ways to fight. You should vote, right? Voting's good. Vote. We have this ability to vote. I, I encourage you, vote the kingdom of God vote what God says is best, but understand that we have to first start by letting God's justice penetrate our own hearts. And that's really what's going to enact change in our social groups, in our communities. Our faith needs some work, and that's what makes us salty. In ACF Church, you are some salty Christians. I love that about you. Like, we got some salty people in this room, and I was just thinking this week about all the people that I know that are just, man, so, so salty in the name of Jesus. Like, there's a family that I know that uh, recently walked into the journey of foster care um, to adopt. And if you've ever done the foster care thing, especially in the state of Alaska, it's a journey. And it's a process. And it's um, lots of tears and lots of challenges. But they want to be salty Christians, right? So they, they, they let God's, God's heart come into them to develop a heart for this, this little boy. And so they're like, man, we want to do what we can to impact this kid's life. I think of a young woman in her 20s whose husband is deployed and she's got some options. She can just hang out all night and watch Netflix, just chill at home. But she decided, no, I want to host a group of junior high girls at my house. I want to mentor them and teach them and and show them what's best and, and encourage them and disciple them. She wants to be a salty Christian, right? So this is an overflow of what's going on inside their own hearts. I think of another couple who uh, is actually planning on leaving a very comfortable job situation to start a business so that they can support and fund the ministry of ACF Church. Some salty Christians, right? Like, who would do that? Probably only people who have let God's justice penetrate their own hearts. And I think of so many of you who have open conversations about your faith all the time. And you know in your heart, man, Brian, God, is, God has transformed my heart. And as I look at my life, he is developing in me a passion to see things look more like the kingdom of God. So I love that. But he, he gives this kind of warning in this passage, and I want to close with this. He says this. He says that the salt will be trampled under people's feet. In other words, it's just, it's just worthless. It's good for nothing. And again, what he's not saying is, well, if you struggle here, if you're like, man, I'm probably that religious person, what you need is not more good religious duty. You don't just need like another mission to shoot for. What you need is to let God's heart penetrate your heart. Because here's the deal. There is no such thing as a good-for-nothing Christian. There's no such thing. You might be like, oh, my friends call me that all the time. No, there is no such thing as a good-for-nothing Christian. Because when God's heart penetrates your heart, it develops a passion to fight for things that are unjust in the world. You see, the cross was God's chosen instrument of justice, and as Christians, we realize that that all of God's wrath was poured out on Christ, and that Jesus took our sin upon Himself. But it looked different than what people expected. Jesus fought for justice in a way that didn't look like what they expected. They, they wanted a, a warrior, right, to just come bash some skulls together. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to fight for justice in the world by, by, by being crucified, by, by being, being killed as an enemy of the state. That's how I'm going to die. That's how I'm going to seek justice is through self-sacrifice. And I just want you to know that's how we do it too. And it will look different to the world. Matthew twelve eighteen. I want to close with this. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. This is Jesus speaking now, showing people that this is how he is going to enact change in a broken, polarized culture. And here's the prophecy. He says this, Look well at my hand-picked servant. I love him so much. Take such delight in him. I've placed my spirit on him. He'll decree justice to the nations, but he won't yell, won't raise his voice, There'll be no commotion in the streets. He won't walk over anyone's feelings, won't push you into a corner. Before you know it, his justice will triumph. And the mere sound of his name will signal hope even among far-off unbelievers. Here's how you can know that God's justice has penetrated your heart first is that your name signals hope to unbelievers. Not that they won't disagree with you. Not that they won't dislike you sometimes, but that by the way you live your life, people will see hope. That you'll be a signal of hope. And so this morning, we're going to baptize people. If if you are here and God has done something in your heart, and, and maybe you've made the decision to follow him, I just want you to know the very first step for you is to be baptized. It's the very first thing. And if you've been a Christian for five seconds or 50 years and you've never been baptized, today is your day. We would love to baptize you. And baptism is just a symbol of the death and resurrection of Christ. As you go in the water, it's like you're, you're putting to death your old self, right? And as you come up out of the water, it's a symbol of your new life in Jesus. And what it is, is it's a symbol of hope. And so you today, if you're like, Brian, I want to signal hope to people, you can start by being baptized. And as you're baptized, you know what we do? We go, man, there's hope for me too. If there's hope for her, if there's hope for him, there's hope for me too. And that's what baptism is all about. It's all about signaling hope to the world. And so if that's you today, if you're like, man, I, that's me. I think I need to make this decision. I need to take this step. I want, I want you to be courageous today. And just go out to the table in the lobby. And uh, there's some people that would love to talk to you. And, and, and they have shirts and shorts, hair dryers in the bathroom. They have everything for you scrunchies for your hair, everything you could possibly want. So no excuses. If God is working in your heart, you can go home in your clothes, but don't leave here today without making that decision. I think we baptized nine people this morning, which is awesome. So let's, let's continue that and continue to take that step together. And it's going to be a little different if you've been part of baptism at ACF. Um, it's going to happen during the worship time here in the next few minutes. So the band's going to be singing and playing, and I just encourage you, like, if you see somebody get baptized. You just need to scream and freak out and clap. That's what we do. It's a celebration of new life. So we're going to celebrate that. And if that's you today, I'd encourage you just to be courageous to stand up and make that decision and uh, go out to the lobby and check in. Would you stand? I'd love to pray for us as we close. God, we just want to thank you first for your grace on us. And uh, God, we want to repent. Confess, God, that we have fought for things in the world and yet not first started by letting you work those things out in our own hearts. And God, we want to see things differently, God. Would you change the way that we see the world? That we'd look at them through the lens of grace, God, the same lens that you see us from. And so, God, I pray that would change the conversation and that uh, people would sense that there's hope. God, even when they see things differently, God, they would sense that there's hope when they interact with us. God, I pray that for our city and for the state of Alaska, that when people think of this community, these people, ACF Church, they would think of hope. So God, show us how to have that conversation. I want to pray for the people here today, God, that need to make the step of of baptism. You Give give them the courage and the ability to stand. God, thank you so much that you're not ashamed of us. We don't want to be ashamed of you. Thank you for changing our hearts and changing our lives. God, may we signal hope to the world as we live this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.